Let's stand and read this passage together. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you fool, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also, so also faith without works is dead. Pray with me. Um, Lord, thank you um, for your word. We thank you for your word this morning. Um, we pray that you would um, do what you do with your word in our hearts, um, that it would penetrate um, our souls and that it would lead us to action. Um, Lord, would you help us to uh, focus, to not be distracted? Would you give me some clear words um, this morning and uh, thank you that we get to participate in the work that you do through your word. We are so grateful to you for that. In Christ's name, amen. All right, take a seat. As we go through the text next few minutes this morning, we're going to ask ourselves three questions that I think are right um, to be asked. I think James asked them. I think God would be asking, having us ask them of ourselves as we go through James. The first one is, is, is our faith dead? Ask yourself, is your faith dead? Because faith alone is useless. It's useless. This might seem in your mind a little bit to contradict this famous saying in the Reformation, right? Sola fide, faith alone. We're saved by grace through faith alone, right? Nothing else. James says in here that faith without works is useless. He says this about as literally as he could. He says, what use is it in verse 14? He says again in verse 16, what use is that? Literally, how does that profit? What good is it? And then he calls faith by itself dead or dead by its own standards. Another way of saying useless, really. Depending on your translation, it says something like, can that faith save him? Or can such a faith save him? What such a faith? Faith without works. Now, you could even read this verse in context from the original language without the this or the that. It's not distinguishingly there in the Greek. So it could read, if someone claims he has faith but doesn't have works, can faith save him? Just in general. Now, the important thing to note um, about these opening verses in our section this morning is the important word there is the says. It's the claims. It's the faith claim, right? Did you see that when you read it? It's not a work claim. This is a 
claim to faith. So someone says he has faith, but he's not living a life that evidence, evidences that he has faith. There's no works there. But faith claims also in the present tense, like almost like it's this, suggests it's like a habitual boast, like he always says this stuff, but doesn't live that way. Can that kind of faith save him, James says? Well, that's a rhetorical question, right? That kind of faith can't save him, of course. But there's a little question here, not a little question, a huge question, in James as to what kind of faith James is talking about and what kind of salvation he's talking about. And we might not answer all those questions this morning, but there's two primary ways I think this can be interpreted correctly, and I'm going to give you both of them because I didn't know which one to pick, quite honestly. I wrote this sermon one way, went the other way, went back and forth, so you're going to get them both. Here's the first one. This kind of faith James is referring to, um, it can just be one kind of faith, the saving faith. Luther called it a living faith or a vital faith. And the same kind of faith that saves us from our sins will naturally lead and always lead by God's power to obedience. Faith that doesn't lead to obedience, to good deeds, isn't the kind of faith that saves in the first place. Dead, sa dead faith doesn't save. Dead faith can't save. And then James here is saying that this mere faith claim, just because you claim faith, says nothing about whether that faith is real. It says nothing about whether it's authentic. Eternally saving faith will lead to obedient faith that expresses itself in good works, fruits of the Spirit, etc. That's um, one way. It's the way that I always thought James was intended to be read, and it could be the right way. Um, I've heard this beautifully taught and beautifully preached, much better than you're going to hear me teach it this morning, and uh, by godly men, and that could be the right way. But I've almost convinced myself that this other way is maybe a little better. We're going to end up in the same place, so don't worry. Here's the second way. Can the kind of faith, faith without works, save someone who claims to have it? Some interpreters, almost half of the ones I consulted, would point back to James chapter 1, verse 21, and they'd make a point that, look, James here isn't talking about eternal salvation. James 1, 21, where he says, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. This phrase, save your souls, can be translated in different ways. It can be translated, save your souls. It can be translated, save your lives or save yourself. So some people make the case that James isn't even talking about eternal salvation here talking about a different kind of saving. A bunch of reasons for that. Some of them I gave months ago now when we were in James 1. Big ones are the audience was already Christians. James is talking to believers. And when he does address eternal salvation, which he does other places in James, he talks about it in the past tense. It's, it's this thing that we already have because of our union with Christ. This whole phrase here in the Greek, to save yourselves or to save your soul, isn't used to refer to salvation anywhere else in Scripture, not directly anyway. And where it's used elsewhere in the Greek Old Testament, as well in the New, um, there's places in Genesis, there's places in Samuel, there's a place, at least one place in Jeremiah. It's used to refer to to save a life, to save yourselves, that kind of that kind of way. Jesus actually uses the same phrase in Luke six and in Mark four when he asks the Pharisees and the and the people listening, he says, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? Same phrase there. Right before he saved this cripple's life by healing him. Right? 
Okay, so this, this interpretation, this second option that I just laid out, um, which is sort of new to me, to be honest, saving a life, not necessarily from hell, but from the earthly consequences of sin by act of obedience. The whole epistle of James is, seems to be about this topic. At least it fits really well, that that's what he's talking about here. He talks a lot about how to have an integrated, how to have a whole life by being obedient, by walking in obedience. James has a bunch of commands. In fact, it has half as many commands as it has verses in the whole book that are telling us to be an effectual doer. Don't be a deluded hearer. You have to walk by this stuff. You have to do these commands. You have to obey. Count your suffering joy. Don't cooperate with sin. James is talking about all sorts of stuff that we're supposed to do. And therefore, probably not talking about salvation, the argument goes. Either way, we can see that this faith claim, just a mere claim to faith, doesn't save us, either the in, in, in the eternal sense or in any type of temporal sense, it doesn't. What is certain, and what I need to say right away, or at least up front, is that James cannot be interpreted in context, in any context that makes sense, as to be teaching a works-based salvation. Right? James is not saying, and never says, that faith plus works contributes to our salvation, to our justification, to our being declared righteous before God. I hope we see that over and over as we finish going through this text together. Our salvation is all God. The gospel, our salvation, free gift, not by works. Him, not us. A lot of people get this wrong. This is how James is taken out of context the most, right? Let's not get that wrong. James chapter 1, verse 18, um, this is a case, I think, as an aside sort of, where James is talking about salvation. He's talking about it in the past tense. He says, because the audience is believers, he's talking to believers here. He says, in the exercise of his will, God's will, he brought us forth, literally rebirthed us, this is regeneration, by the word of truth. James just got done talking about some of the consequences of sin the natural consequence of sin being death. And then now God, by the word of truth, rebirths us. God rebirths us. This is all, births us. It's all in the past tense. And the word of truth, of course, here refers to the message of the gospel and to Jesus himself. Double meaning in there, I think. All right, back to James 2. He's calling this kind of faith, faith without works, dead. Necros, the word here is the same word for corpse. And he uses that example in this text later. A dead body is useless. It doesn't necessarily mean the dead body doesn't exist, right? It's just useless. Dead faith is as useless as giving a cold and starving brother or sister kind words but not doing anything to clothe them or to feed them when presumably we could be doing something, but we're just giving them words. It's the example he uses here. Remember the beginning of James 2. Brian preached on this in December, we had these poor people in the body of Christ. This is a, like an in-the-church thing, this example. These poor people were being discriminated against because they were poor and apparently had less to offer. And that was a sin, James was very clear. That was not allowed or justifiable. Here, in our passage, James is bringing up that same brother or sister in the church. They have a tangible need, and your faith, without words, when you can do something about it, useless. All throughout James, remember back in chapter 1, he talks about real religion in the sight of God as what? Visiting orphans and widows in their distress. This is an outside the church thing, I think. Going to meet vulnerable people in their places of need, finding them, 
be doers and not just hearers of the word. If all we have to offer is words, what good is that? It's a real practical point here I think he's making. Kind of reminds me of the manufactured controversy in our culture. If you read the news, I'm not recommending that. Um, you hear every time there's like this tragedy or something bad happens, people offer their thoughts and prayers as a you know, nice sentiment. And then people are outraged, like, ah, oh, I don't want your thoughts and prayers. I want you to do something about it. Well, that's a ridiculous manufactured outrage. But like every lie, there's an element of truth there, right? What good are words in a situation when you can do something about it? Now, prayer is doing something about it if you're a believer, right? It's one of the reasons that outrage is silly. Imagine yourself in a place of material need. I don't know, like obvious material need, like say you're skiing and you broke your leg and you fell into this tree well upside down and you're like in danger because your leg's broke, you can't get out, whatever. You're in danger of freezing to death. What if someone skis along beside you? Let's say it's a brother. Let's say it's Simon or something. Sorry, man. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and, he, and, and this brother of yours says, ooh, hey, man, that's, that stinks, you know. Stay warm. Hope you, hope, you hope to see you again later, you know, and he's gone, right? That's, a, that's ridiculous. It's supposed to be ridiculous. I think James uses this here to be obvious, an obvious example of ridiculousness. Is our faith as useless as, as a dead body? Is, he, is our faith dead? Is there anyone besides us that would recognize that maybe there's something going on there, right? That maybe there are some good deeds. I think it's appropriate, whether this was James' point or not, but it's appropriate just to remind ourselves that Jesus himself said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom, right? Many people will even claim to have prophesied and performed great miracles even, but the Savior himself on judgment day will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. There will be pretenders, and probably there will be people who are tragically deceived who hear those words. What a tragedy that would be. Is our faith dead? Okay, second question to ask ourselves. Is our faith demonic? Is our faith dead? Is our faith demonic? Ooh. Right belief and emotion aren't enough. I think James would tell us here. Right belief and emotion aren't enough. James here in verse 18 introduces a hypothetical conversation partner in order to then refute him. This is a common um, technique elsewhere in the Bible. It's also just common in a lot of writing. It actually has a formal name. It's called a diatribe. And the idea here is to introduce a conversation partner who says something that then you can come refute and say, ha, how dumb is that, right? James is doing that here. But a particular difficulty with the way that he does it here, and this is a hard, this is a really hard text. Um, for me, it was anyway, to, to wrap my mind around. Um, is that in Greek, there aren't quotation marks. These punctuations aren't there. So you have to infer from the context what is actually being said by the, the objector who's going to be refuted. And in this case this morning, consulting like 10 other Bible scholars, commentators, trying to figure out where these quotes are supposed to be, there's four different answers that you can make sense of. We're not going to go through all four because we don't have time as much as I would love to do that. I'm just going to give you the top two. Uh, one of them, the hypothetical objector, could just be saying that faith and works can be separate. He could be making the point. Faith and works can be separate. 
right? When he says, someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. That could be the point the objector is making. And then James says, no, they can't. Authentic faith always leads to acts of obedience and love, to works, the word he uses. That's one way. You can see how, you might see how that's connected to those two options I gave you earlier and what kind of salvation James is talking about here. And the second way says to understand this is the objector is basically saying living faith always leads to good works. Kind of different. Living faith always leads to good works, to which James says, no, real faith should lead to good works, but it doesn't always. The difference here is super subtle. Authentic faith always leads to good works, or authentic faith should lead to good works? I mean, it's close to the same thing. Uh, James in 4.17 says that to the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Kind of applies we can know the right thing, right, and, and not do it. So I sort of like the second one better. But either way, James is rebuking this hypothetical objector. He's saying, look, fool, I told you, and I'm going to tell you four more times in this little section, that faith without works is useless. He doesn't actually say that there's no such thing as faith without works. He's not really addressing that corner case. Like, could we have this, you know, really minimal faith that saves us but doesn't change us, doesn't do anything in our lives? I, I don't actually think he comes out and addresses that. But if that were capable of being true, it would be a corner case, right? Not something you'd want to bank your life on. Okay, so he uses this illustration here in verse 19 of the demon. The demon says God is one, right? This is a reference to the Shema, um, Deuteronomy 6, 4. This is what every good Orthodox Jewish believer would say every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is an example of good Jewish doctrine or good monotheistic doctrine. This is referring to right belief. This is referring to a head knowledge, maybe just a head knowledge. You know, this verse here talking about Satan and everything, or demons, got me thinking some stuff I don't remember thinking before. You ever thought about that demons might have better theological knowledge than you do? Satan minion, Satan's minions might know, might know more about doctrine than you or I, right? They were, some of them were probably there at the great early church councils, Nicaea, Chalcedon, right? Some of them witnessed in a more direct way than we did, perhaps, church history. Okay, so you believe right things about God. Congratulations, James says. That's no better than what demons believe, and that's not going to help you. Demons, rather than their knowledge leading to obedience, it leads to this negative emotional response. They shudder or they bristle. Maybe that's because they know they're being rebellious and they know who God is. They know right things about him and they're going to answer for that. There's still something important missing, right? Also, a demonic faith doesn't lead to good works. Maybe that's the best example James had in his head of a faith that doesn't lead to good works, right? Demons have a belief, at least, that doesn't lead to good works. Demonic faith, if we can use that term like I have, is useless because right knowledge doesn't always lead to 
obedience and good deeds. We can say that on either one of these two interpretations I've given you in James. Right knowledge doesn't always lead to obedience and good deeds. Clearly, it doesn't in the case of demons. I find some Latin words on this point helpful. Uh, Martin Luther talked about, I already said this, he, he argued, talked about a, and a, a living and a vital faith. This is the kind of faith that saves. A buddy of his, Philip Melanchthon, published a book way back, beginning of the Reformation, 1521. He used these three words to describe an essential aspect of saving faith, right? James doesn't really get into all this. We're going to, Charlotte, would you put the first slide up? I actually wrote the bottom of your first page. If you have notes and you're following along, I wrote the three Latin words down so you wouldn't have to try to spell a Latin word. Here's what they were. Three essential elements to saving faith. This is talking about a justifying faith, saving faith is in how we are saved from our sin, how God saves us. Here's the three elements. First, the first one is this word notitia. This means the content or the subject um, of, our, of a faith claim or the object of our faith. This is a truth statement. Like Christ died for my sin. It's just saying that. That's this one element of faith. Not enough for saving faith. Second one is a census. Um, this is like assent. This is where our word assent comes from. This is a confidence or an assurance, a strong belief, like an intellectual persuasion. Like I believe that Christ died to pay the price for my sins. This would be an example of that aspect of faith. Those first two aren't enough. If you just have those first two, that's sort of what the demons have here, right? We have, might have right knowledge. We might have, we might assent to it. We might believe it's true. Not enough. This third point, fiducia, and that word is where we get the English word fiduciary. It means resting. It means trust. Based on a conviction. This is a personal willingness to take the final step, like I place my trust in Christ by the grace of God to save me and nothing else, right? True saving faith, like any reformer would tell you, Sola Fide, has these three elements to it. So justification by faith alone refers to this kind of faith and this kind of technical detail. Not the kind of technical detail James bothered get, to get into, but we just did. I find this helpful. Hopefully it's not distracting. Scripture's clear again. There's no works that we do that have anything to do with our salvation, our justification, why God sees us as righteousness. We're saved through faith alone, by the grace of God. So one way that we'll get to in a minute, we can think about this justifying saving faith is an eternal salvation saving faith. This is justification's root. This is the foundation. This is where it comes from. This is what James and John and Jesus talk more about in scripture. This is why people get confused when James comes up and he starts talking about the consequences of that later if we're doing it right. That's justification's fruit. Paul agrees with James, by the way, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and then 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. But then we often leave verse 10 out. Verse 10 says, for we're his works, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. There's no disagreement here on what saving faith is or what its consequences should be. James is talking to early Jewish Christians that were being dispersed. They were coming under persecution really, really early. James' letter was probably written before any of Paul's were. And I think he's addressing an audience that may have been tempted to sort of hunker down 
and just be okay with the fact that they're saved by grace through faith. They have right doctrine. They have right belief. But they don't do anything about it. James, the whole book of James, is to confront that idea that we, can't, we shouldn't have works. We shouldn't worry about it. So I think James rejects this minimalist notion of just like insurance policy saving faith. That doesn't change us. He's urging us. He's compelling us. This whole book is him commanding us to live what we preach, to walk the way we talk. Demonic faith won't cut it. Maybe a better way to say this or a better application for us, at least for me anyway, not to think about demonic faith, but maybe like a casual faith. Like I have some right knowledge, believe some right stuff, know some right things. Does it affect the way I live? Has it transformed me? Is my faith living? God invites us to participate in what he's doing in the world and in our hearts after he saves us. He invites us to participate in this. Why would we shirk that? Why would we neglect that? But we do. So the third question I would have us ask ourselves this morning from from this passage of James is, it had to be a D, right? Faith, dead faith, demonic faith, is our faith dynamic? Is our faith dynamic? Is our faith living? Is the root producing fruit? I think here, getting towards the end of the passage, I think verse 21 to verse 23, James is still addressing this hypothetical objector that we saw a few verses ago. Because verse 22, when he says you, that's singular. That's a singular you. <coughs> Excuse me. Like he's objecting to one person, the objector. So we see then in verse 21, that Abraham's justified, he's declared righteous by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar. And then verse 22, faith plus works, working together, works perfecting faith. What's this all about? Sort of reminds me of James chapter 1, uh, verse 2 to 4. He says, consider it joy, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This progression to perfection through obedience and good works is everywhere in James. So here, Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac, this is fulfilling the scripture found in Genesis 15:6. Then he, Abram, believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness, or he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He's called a friend of God. Do you know that even the Quran calls Abraham a friend of God? He is famous for being a friend of God. You remember that Jesus said that we're his friends if we do what he commands us. John 15. All right, Genesis 15, 6, this quote here from Genesis that James uses. I think this is the first place in scripture where the word belief is used. It's certainly the classic example of Old Testament saving faith, right? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had just had a successful battle at this point, Genesis 15. Um, He was worried about not having an heir when he came back, and God was talking to him, and God said, look, you will have a natural heir. And even though he and Sarah seemed too old and it wasn't going to work, and there was a whole bunch of reasons it wasn't going to work, Abraham believed God. He trusted God. And that was credited to him as righteousness. We rightly see the gospel in this, right? And it's beautiful 
God's grace takes away our sin and replaces it with Christ's righteousness. It doesn't come from us. We don't do anything to deserve it. We believe, have faith, and he gives us what we need. He declares us righteous. It's a thing we couldn't earn. In verse 24 here, when James uses the word you, he switches from the singular, like answering the objector, to the plural. Like now he's turning back to his audience, and he's just making this general statement. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul, in Romans 4, quotes this same scripture from Genesis 15, 6. Here's, here's Paul in Romans 4, 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So I looked up all these words just to make sure that, and the word for justified that James uses in James 2 and that Paul uses in Romans 4, same word. The word used for works that James uses, that Paul uses, same word. The same word for faith that James uses and Paul uses, same word. They quote the exact same scripture even. How can Abraham be justified by faith without works, like Paul says, and justified by works, not by faith alone, like James says, at the same time? They're using the same words in this case to say different things. Context is everything, absolutely everything in this case. Neither author uses this technical theological language like we would use now if we're writing a book or trying to write a sermon or studying or whatever. James uses this same quote that James uses, but he uses it in a different way, and I want us to catch that. James refers to the sacrifice of Isaac, right? And then he quotes this, this verse. James is referring to a story that's in Genesis 22, you know how long Genesis 22 happens after Genesis 15? It's decades. I don't know exactly, but it's more than 20 years. It's decades later when Abraham had the faith to be willing to sacrifice his son, whom through, the, through whom the promise was made. This was de- he was declared righteous by, God, righteous by God because of his faith decades prior. And now James is saying, here's something he did decades later. That justifies him, but in a different way. He's using the word justification differently. He's saying that it was fulfilled. His actions fulfilled. His actions were evidence of his faith. And that he walked by faith in those intervening years, by the way. Could Abraham have been declared righteous twice? This is what justification means, declared righteous. Sure, but it's a different kind of justification. You know what we need? We need a chart. We're going to have one. Well, you can put it up now if you want, but I'll talk about it in a minute. Think for a second, though. It would be fun to go back and read Genesis 22 and, and, re- and rehearse the whole story. We don't have time. I got to do that this week in studying. But just, I mean, try to imagine if you can for a second. I still can't. What it would be like if God asked you in no uncertain terms and you heard him say, sacrifice your son, your only son, for me. There's some clues here in the story in Genesis, as well as the author of Hebrews, give us as to how Abraham could do this. doesn't really answer the question, but 
in the story in Genesis 22, it says Abraham immediately obeyed God. He got up the next day. It was a several-day journey to Mount Moriah. He packed all the stuff up, took Isaac. And uh, it says in verse 5 that he took some servants, too, that were helping him carry stuff, presumably, that when he saw the mountain where God told him to sacrifice Isaac, he told his servants, stay here with the donkey. Me and my son are going to go over there and worship, and then we'll come back. James was assuming already he was going to come back with it. Not James. Abraham was assuming already that he was going to come back with his son. Even though he knew what God's command was, he was confident that he would, actually. Hebrews eleven seventeen, the famous hall of faith, talking about, talking about Abraham, says this in verse 17, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that he, Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he's also receiving back as a type. Abraham believed God. He trusted in God. He walked in that faith for decades, his whole life. He understood that God holds the power to life and death. And if God was telling him to do this thing, that would have been inconceivable had it not come clearly from God. He still believed God and his promises. God will deal with it. He thought God was going to deal with it a different way than God ended up dealing with it, but he was willing to go through with it all the way to killing his son because he knew God could bring him back, and he trusted that he would do that. There's a whole bunch of lessons we could learn on what faith should look like from Genesis 22, how it obeys God completely, real faith, how it holds nothing back, how it waits on the Lord, who does provide, but only after real personal sacrifice. Sacrifice that I still now have a hard time conceiving of that. You could put yourself in his shoes. One final thing to note here about this James 2 versus Romans 4 thing is uh, this apparent contradiction, I'll call it. Paul, in Romans 4, 2, leaves open the possibility of another kind of justification. He says what he says, and then he says, just not before God. You can't be justified by works before God. And not, not in a way that's pertaining to alter, eternal salvation, which is Paul's point here in Romans 4. That's by grace through faith alone. But there could be another kind of justification, maybe a justification before men, maybe a vindication, maybe a perfection of faith that has works with it, that we're cooperating with, a real, dynamic, living, obedient faith. This is exactly what James is talking about. Right? So I put a chart in your notes. If you're like me, a note taker, you can choose to fill it in. This is the key. This is like my key for convincing myself there is absolutely no contradiction between James and the rest of Scripture, really, but mostly Paul. Paul is talking to self-righteous Jews who were tempted to think they could work their way to salvation. This is his audience. James is talking to people who are already Christians who are living in a dead orthodoxy. Their faith wasn't doing anything for them or anyone else. Paul talks about justification, being le legally declared righteous before God. He's talking about the foundation of justification, how we usually use the term now if you're talking about theology. But James is talking about a vindicating evidence of a living faith before men. He's talking about justification's fruit, not the root. And sa same way for faith and works. Paul sets up this dichotomy between faith and works. 
because he's using the word works to mean meritorious works that contribute something to your salvation, to your justification, to the forgiveness of your sins. James uses the word differently. He's talking about believers' works. He's talking about believers' works of obedience and love that every believer should have. If you're still tempted to see the contradiction between Paul and James, even after this cool chart, I mean, how could you be, right? <laughs> Remember that James and Paul were both at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, talking about not the same topic, but a similar topic? These men were in agreement. They were contemporaries. And there's no evidence at all in Scripture that they had disagreements about this topic. They both would agree that faith alone saves, but that faith, but the faith that saves is never alone. You may have heard that. Or at least the faith that saves never should be alone, I would say, is the argument that James is making. So we have the example of demons. We have the example of Abraham. Verse 25, you'll notice there's still one more example left before we finish. This is the example of Rahab. Rahab was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Remember that story? Super fast summary. Moses had just died. Joshua was about to lead the Israelites across the Jordan in military, into military conquest of the promised land. And he's particularly concerned about this walled town of Jericho. So he sends two spies. They lodge at Rahab, the harlot's house. The king there, local king, gets word. He sends for the spies. Rahab lies to protect the spies. Now, Rahab had already learned, if you read the story, you'd see this, you'd see this. She'd already heard about the God of the Israelites. And she saw that these men were somehow different, right? She probably had some pretty clear ways to see this, considering her vocation and what men usually did when they came to her house. Because of the actions she took that were based on her faith, the spies made a promise to her to protect her and her family, and she was saved. Hebrews 11, Rahab also makes the hall of faith. It says, by faith, Rahab the harlot didn't perish along with those who were disobedient after she welcomed the spies in peace. Notice specifically what Rahab is being commended for by James here. It's not her lying. It's certainly not her vocation. It's the actions that she took when, when she received the spies and when she sent them out. It was the action that she took as a result of her faith in the God of Israel. And she was saved as a result. Why do you suppose Abraham, or why do you suppose James used these two examples, Abraham and Rahab, to make his point here? They couldn't be more different. Right? Abraham was a great patriarch. And then you have this harlot who is barely prostitute. He's barely even mentioned in scripture. You have a Jew and a Gentile. Not just a Gentile, you have a Gentile from Jericho, the enemy of God's people at this point, right? I think maybe it's because I can find myself in between those two somewhere, right? And I think James is trying to make a universal point here. So he uses these two examples that are, to the early Jewish Christian, these seem like opposites. So he wraps up, he finishes our section with, for, the, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. I think James is saying in here that it's possible for us as believers to be saved by grace, by grace through faith, but to have a dead faith, to fall away from or to not be living by faith. And he's warning us that sin has real consequences. 
even if God does save us from eternal damnation in the end because of who he is and how great his grace is, we deserve that. He, doesn't, he wants us to live with a dynamic faith. He wants us to trust and obey him in everything. Living like any other way at all would certainly be in sin and would certainly be a waste of the gifts he's given us, of the life he's given us. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Um, gracious Father, thank you uh, for letting us uh, struggle a little bit and wrestle through the book of James. Um, thank you that this is in scripture and that it challenges us to figure out <clears throat> what you're trying to tell us through this. Um, Lord, we want to have a faith like Abraham. We want to have a faith that doesn't hold anything back from you. We want to fix our eyes on who you are so clearly and on what your promises are um, that we live totally differently in the way that transforms us and that changes the world. We need you to do that. Lord, thank you that you would do that. Through us, help us to not be casual about this gift that you've given us. Help us to love you and love our neighbor like you would have us do it. Thank you. It's in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus, that